Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This is where we have conversations with guests about life, loss, grief, and grief dreams, which can be dreams of your loved ones that have passed away. So if you want to know more about the topic, you can definitely check out our website, griefdreams.ca, for more information. And here are four ways you can help support the podcast and help us spread awareness on this amazing topic. So number one, subscribe and rate the podcast on the platform that you listen to it on. Number two, become a member of the podcast, and that's for as low as $1.50 a month. This helps us run the podcast, and you can find the Patreon link in the show notes. Number three, you can take the Grief Dreams online course by Dr. Joshua Black at griefdreams.ca. And lastly, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Facebook at Grief Dreams. And now on to the show. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. On today's podcast, we have with us Dr. Roger Ivar Lohman, and he is an associate professor of anthropology at Trent University. He has published extensively about the relationship between dreaming and culture, including dream travelers, sleep experiences, and culture in the Western Pacific. An ethnographer of the Asabano people of Papua New Guinea, he has served as editor-in-chief of the journal Reviews in Anthropology, chair of the Association for Social Anthropology in Oceania, and president of the Green Party of Ontario. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. That's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. But, you know, with the magic of editing, we'll make that sound great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited for this episode for a couple of reasons. One was I... I went to Trent University for my master's, which I really, it's when I really started to, you know, try to understand this topic of grief dreams a lot more. And I'm just, and then I found your article later on when it came to how you look at dreams with anthropology. And I was so amazed and so awestruck by it all. But I was also very disappointed that I didn't get a chance to sit down and talk to you while I was starting my career, because there's a lot of information there that I'm using now that I would have used back then. So I just want to thank you for the work you're doing. And it's just sad that we never got a chance to connect or no one pointed me to to you on campus. <laughs> well, thank you. It's it's great to know that someone discovers your work, you know, out there eventually. <laughs> you never know. And I have to say, life is 90% missed opportunities. So uh, it's always interesting to to keep following up. Yeah, definitely. And so I'm really curious for you, how did you get into anthropology? As we were talking off air, you're the first person I know who went this direction. So, and so, <laughs> so what, what, what takes a man to go this way? <laughs> well, I think it really has to do with just wanting to understand people. And uh, we, of course, we are humans. So on the one hand, anthropology is about our favorite subject, ourselves. You just want to understand yourself and how you think and why you do things. But a lot of anthropology is focused on other people, people who are not yourself, or people who uh, live in other societies. And so I, since I was a kid in school, I found myself uh, surprised and confused by the way my fellow human beings behaved. Why did they do the things that they did? Uh, they weren't the things that I would do. Or I would notice myself thinking in a certain way, and I was like, why Why do I find that interesting and that not interesting? I was interested in you know, other people living in other parts of the world. How do they live? Why do they live differently than we do? 
or people in the past, their lives were so different. To me, it was just a curiosity about our own species, including myself. And so what have you learned about yourself by studying like other people? Oh, goodness. Well, I think one thing that I've learned, that's a tough question, actually. One thing I've learned is that other people do not think like me. <laughs> I tend to assume that other people must think like me and I'm just missing something. But the lesson that's really come home to me is that I actually think differently in many ways from many people around me. And of course, this, the same is true for, for everybody. We, we maybe expect others to be thinking just as we do. Uh, and of course, there is lots of overlap, but there are also some really big differences, sometimes about foundational issues that we're not necessarily aware of. Yeah, that's a that's a great thing to learn. I think for everybody to learn something like that, because for me, that would lead into a lot more, I guess, empathy and compassion, well, empathy and, and sympathy for another person, if you can understand why they are different, because otherwise, then you might get I guess slighted and maybe feel like somebody should act a certain way. But if you can understand it from an anthropological context, then you'd say, okay, I can understand why this person might act like that. That's that's something for me growing up as well. I, I, I was very curious, very curious about why, how people turned out, how they turned out. Like for me, just in my own life, like uh, my parents immigrated to Canada from India so just understanding that and, you know, how I turn out, even just physical aspects, how I turn out the way I am over here, how how people in India have evolved over time and developed, like, and what the foods we eat, how that plays a part in a society, in a culture. And what's what's incredible is how this all, a lot of genetics plays a part in that and how it happens over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And now we're in a we're in a spot in the world where movement is a lot more possible like you know thousands and thousands of years people didn't move that often other than i guess you're talking about like big transitions from like let's say siberia to like north america and stuff like that but now everybody's flying around moving to different countries so it's it's even more i think important to kind of understand where we all came from in the beginning Mm -hmm. Boy, you've said a mouthful there. There's a there's a, a a lot going on in what you just said. I mean, the point about about empathy by being able to, uh, you know, trying to understand other people who are different from us does give us a sense of empathy. And and uh, interestingly, empathy is a also a way to understand people that are different. Um, I I was tempted to uh, when you asked me the first question to tell a, a story from my childhood that I sometimes think led to my being an anthropologist. And so maybe I will tell it. And I was a uh, you know a little boy in the schoolyard at at a uh, uh, recess break, and I had found a toad by the side of a fence, and I was holding up the toad and admiring it, and I showed it to um, to uh, a little boy who was with me, and uh, I was all excited, and he took the toad from my hand, put it on the ground, and stomped on it and left, and I was first of all horrified, but I was most deeply surprised and shocked because to me that was such a just an incomprehensible thing to do. And uh, so I think we're all struck with people who are behave differently than us. And an instant reaction may be when we disapprove to, to feel dislike, uh, hatred, or just rejection. But that's really missing the point. You know, not only does it get us into trouble because we fight and so on and mm. sometimes kill each other over such things, but it also uh, um, it's a, one of those missed opportunities 
because it's when you see people thinking and acting differently than you do, that's a hint that there's something else going on. They have reasons for doing things what they do, and to them it makes sense, and and uh, um, to them it fits in. So for them it's not wrong. So uh, and that's a primary insight of anthropology. And your second point about you know comparing uh, you know life in India to here, uh, and that there's a there's a genetic component as well as a cultural component. That's absolutely important in anthropology, too. Something I didn't mention was that we bring together the study of biology with the study of culture. We study languages. We also study human past through material remains uh, that people left behind. So we're really bringing together all the possible sources of information we can find together to understand uh, human commonality and, and human difference. Yeah, without anthropology to kind of put it all together, from my understanding, I think we wouldn't have as much of a sense of what goes on 10,000 years ago or 20,000 or, you know, however long you want to go back. Because, and you can speak on this more, the sciences seem to be a little bit more uh, isolated, or they're kind of in silos in a lot of ways. But I think for me, from my understanding, anthropology kind of paints the picture a little more clear. Yes, um, at its best, anthropology is a holistic discipline where we bring together all these different uh, approaches. And indeed, it's not just limited to um, the material that people who call themselves anthropologists find. But I personally, for example, get a lot of, of uh, value from work done in psychology and uh, and history and uh um, and even you know the physical sciences uh, you know, in support uh, my thinking in many ways. So so we do try to bring together all those different perspectives to to get the fullest uh, understanding possible. And then I, I can understand many people not wanting to or may not include dreams in their study, but you do. So what led you to look at dreams as part of your your topic of interest? You know, it's it's kind of a uh, it's a strange journey in a way. Uh, it's not something I set out to study. My my first interest really was uh, studying religion. I wanted to. Here was a case where uh, I saw people believing very fervently in things for which there was no scientific evidence, and uh, and there were it wasn't just like one religion. There were hundreds of different religions with with con you know mutually contradictory claims. And yet people were treating them with such great seriousness. And uh, how could they believe these things? What was convincing them to believe in these things? So that's how I came to dreams, actually, because uh, I noticed pretty fast that dreams was one uh, source of information that people would rely on to become convinced that a certain spirit being is real or a certain god was real that they should have a certain relationship with that spirit or God. And that's what religions have in common. They'll have a, you have a belief in a supernatural or a spiritual being or power or more than one, and that there's a, a, an understanding that you should have a certain relationship with uh, with those beings. So, so all religions share that, but then they differ on which spirits or, or forces uh, exist and what relationships we're supposed to have with them. But all of them, I would say, in, in my in my studies, I find it's extremely common that um, religious people will be able to point to some dreams that have influenced their beliefs.
Yeah, when I read that, just in the one article that you had, I was it was floored with just with the types of beliefs and how they did convince people. They even can convert people to a new belief system or culture. Can you talk about how dreams can also not only uh, maintain a, a belief, but also can help change it? Sure. Yeah. It's actually it's they're really good at both of those uh, jobs. So to change, to say, to convert from one belief system to another, dreams are terribly um, important force in that. Gosh, where to start? There's so much going on here. Well, for one thing, um, when if you think about it, imagine a situation like uh, the Asabano people I studied uh, faced. Uh, you've grown up with a certain religion, but then you've got um, a foreigner come to live in your home and tell your people, you guys have it all wrong. Uh, you're you're worshiping uh, the wrong spirits, or you've got the wrong idea about reality. You should be um, uh, following uh, my God, and my God is the only true one. What would convince people to go along with something like that? When you know it's it's a contradiction of what their what their own group has has stood for, what their own parents have uh, brought them up to do, and so on. But one of the major forces that helped them bridge that gap was their dreams, and. That's because people would hear a story, say um, there is a God, and uh, when you die, you you can go to heaven or hell. So that'll be a completely foreign idea to the Asabano traditionally. But then after, you, after they hear these things, they would dream. And in their dreams, some of these stories that they were he- hearing from the missionaries would be played out in their dreams. And I think we're all familiar that, you know, that if you have something that happens in your daily life, especially something that's that's new or something that you're working on learning, quite often the imagery of that new thing will appear in your dream. And so what happens quite often in the case of religions is people will see this repetition of this imagery or it's being played out in their dream, and they will take that as a visual confirmation of the truth of what they've just learned. So in this case, you know, I had people telling me that they had actually dreamed of of uh, visiting God. God spoke to them, or they they saw heaven. They saw what heaven looked like. They met angels. They were transported to heaven. They saw they saw the fires of hell. So and based on these experiences, then they thought, oh, a missionary must be telling the truth. So um, now, if I can back up for a second to a scientific perspective on what's happening here. We now know that one of the things that's going on with dreams, scientifically, is that dreams are imagery that's being shown in the brain that is comparing recent uh, experiences to earlier experiences and earlier understandings from memory. So what we're seeing in dreams is the brain's memory updating system in operation. Uh, It's comparing images. And so I mean, this is familiar, too, I think, for most people who have paid any attention to their dreams. You may notice your dreams are illogical or things will skip. You were talking to your wife one minute and then it turned out your wife was actually your son. <laughs> and you might wake up worrying about that. <laughs> what did that mean? But in fact, it's having to do simply with association. The images that are associated, including the new thing that's unfamiliar and the older thing that's more familiar, are being compared by the, by the brain and its autonomous uh, memory updating system. But when we're dreaming, we're, we're witnessing that happening. We're witnessing those images being compared. And then, especially after we wake up, we're trying to make sense of that. And we try to turn it into a story. 
And based on, depending on uh, what we believe dreams are, and that will be an element of culture, something we've learned, what, what dreams are, that'll change how we, uh, what we think it, the dream actually showed. And I'll tell you, most people, of course, are not educated in, in the latest uh, dream science to know what dreams really are. And, uh, um, and even if they are, they may doubt it. They may be, prefer to trust uh, more traditional explanations of what dreams are, including the idea that dreams are not merely imaginary in any way, but they are actually showing things that are really happening. Yeah, there's there's a lot of cultures out there, and there's well, and at the end of the day too, there's still we just there's a lot we don't know. I wish we could see all the dreams, you know, like one day we will be able to hook someone up and see exactly what they're dreaming, and then we can actually understand the topic even more so. But yeah, I know yeah. just there's like a researcher well, at Trent University too, Dr. Kyle Smith. He was really into like a heads up dreaming. He wrote a book on it about like the precog aspect of these dreams, and and. You know, that in itself is kind of interesting to sort of even think about. And I know a lot of these cultures dream uh, have those type of thoughts too. how dreams can predict the future in different ways. And, you know, for me, I'm just like sitting on the on the sidelines saying, I wonder, I, I don't know. Right. Like there's there's so much to this life. I just don't know. But one thing we do know is a lot of these dreams anyways do reflect um, as what you're saying, just our minds trying to work through what we're what we're trying to learn, what we're going through, our emotions, our waking day state, what we're watching, even the things we eat. There's so many aspects of it that, that are out now, which is really good. So I, I kind of like that because there's a lot of guidance you can give for people who do have nightmares, which before, like when I grew up, my parents told me nightmares were the devil, you know, like in disguise for a lot of times. Right. Or the nightmare. And so I was totally afraid of this stuff. But now as I sort of went through school, I realized, no, like, these nightmares are just reflective of being in an unsafe environment and working through the grief and being bullied, all that sort of stuff. And it just it came into my dreams to sort of try to work through that and try to, I would say, educate myself on what I'm not dealing with in waking life. But I could see that even in my own life. And I can only, can't imagine other cultures on what they do with that information, given that they believe, as your, your article was saying, that they'll dream if they dream something, they'll take everything to be, let's say, the soul traveling or a visitation of some sort. And how do you deal with nightmares? Or how do you deal with those negative dreams that happen? Because that in itself, if it's a loved one, or if it's something else, like, what do you do to reduce those other than like, for me, it my like my view is like, well, you deal with the waking life issue. And then those, you know, right, those dreams should decrease. But like, for them, like, how i guess question for you is how do people who believe that these are i guess outwardly like like the soul traveling and stuff how do they deal with those negative dreams right well if the answer depends on on what people believe dreams are and what they've learned in their culture or developed in their in their own of course every person has a culture in our own mind it's just representations of the world uh that we share with one another and uh and uh, so so depending on what you what you believe dreams are there's going to be different uh, solutions possible um, my favorite solution in my personal life and also uh, just as a, a scholar is is to find out if best we can what is the scientific explanation of of a dream and so if we know what the what the the physiological and the cultural causes are of us to to have certain imagery appear and certain circumstances in our sleep then we're going to um, be able to deal with that reality in a realistic way so um, now 
most people, you know, do not choose to or do not have the opportunity to become uh, educated in what dreams actually are from a scientific point of view, as best as we understand. And indeed, we know fully, not like we're done. There's always more to learn, for sure, but uh, but we know a lot. But most people do not uh, choose to or, or are not able to do that. And so what people often do is they come up with their own working models, their own explanations. So you talked about your parent explanation that a nightmare is the devil appearing to you. So they were, they would be then, in my parlance, subscribing to a visitation theory a cultural dream theory, a dream, a theory of what dreams are that that's learned in your culture. That's uh, that's what a cultural dream theory is. That's uh, that's that's I would call the visitation theory, namely that we are to explain dreams as the visitations to us by some other kind of being, typically a spirit being. So in this case, it was a devil of some kind that was visiting you and tormenting you in, in the dream. But then now, if you have a different, you explain from your own experience in life. If you then use a different cultural ex- dream theory, a different explanation of what dreams are, either a scientific one or a an ethnic one that's not science-based, you're going to get a different uh, answer as to what that, that imagery was, and the implications are going to be different for how you can deal with it. So so if if you uh, believe in the in the visitation theory and that those nightmares are devil visits, well, then you're going to have to figure out a way to uh, to deal with the devil visits. You maybe find a way to exclude the devil from visiting you. Um, uh, you know, maybe give a sacrifice to this to this devil. Maybe get some kind of assistance from some other kind of spirit being to help you. So people would deal with it using those kinds of methods based on that kind of belief system. But say if you if you had a different theory of what um, what dreams are. Say it was a soul travel theory, as you mentioned. That's another cultural dream theory. A common cultural dream theory is that what dreams are actually is what a person's soul sees as it travels outside the body. Obviously not a scientific theory, but a very common cultural dream theory in many um, ethnic societies, uh, including including uh, in Canada, for sure. <laughs> a lot of people have ideas like these everywhere. So if you have a soul travel theory, then... If you, you're seeing an image, say, of, of a scary being, you may not you may not have a category devil to to put it in, but you'll think what you've seen is you've been traveling outside your body and you've actually witnessed some nasty thing or being, and so then the implications for that and how to deal with it would be different. You might um, try not to go to that place anymore in your dream. Say that I I went there and it was a bad thing, or I know some Asabano people told me that they found, although they would have scary dreams, and many of them, if they were soul travel dreams, they didn't have to worry because since their body wasn't along, they couldn't actually be harmed. (laughs) So so they felt actually safe in their dreams if if they were having a scary dream. But that's based on, on a different cultural dream theory. So so you can see how there's a, there's as many answers to your question as there would be cultural dream theories. I think it's just so fascinating because we don't, as you said, like we, we are not educated when it comes to dreams and especially with all the grief that's going on well now in the pandemic and, you know, just in the past, we need to sort of just update our understanding on how people work with dreams to understand how they work with these kind of grief dreams. And I think that's sort of the whole point of the show is like raising awareness on on those aspects and dreams of the deceased, because 
a lot of times people don't ask, but yet they can have a huge impact in how people work through their grief and what it represents and the fact of what they're working through in their grief. Because these dreams, as you said, like even if they're positive or negative, they can be taken in a certain way that may hinder them or may scare them and may complicate their grief in many ways. But if we're not asking about these dreams, we're not doing the full job of a support staff to really help them out through the, the grief journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, first off, I would I would comment that dreaming is something that's not only is it going back to the beginning of humankind, but it's well before. I mean, dreaming is something that's shared by all mammals, and indeed there's evidence uh, that other animals are, uh, some other animals are also dreaming. So, so there's something here that's a, that's a biological evolutionary thing that goes way back before culture. It goes back before our species, well before our species. Uh, and but humans are one of the things that makes humans different from from uh, from other animals uh, that anthropologists like to point to is we have language. And so w- because we have language, we are able to describe things that are not present. <laughs> and yeah. we're able to communicate those things to one another. So you can imagine that if you uh, had a had a dream, uh, say someone someone you love died, and you had a dream of them that might be a scary dream, they might have been threatening you, say, or it might be a, a, a reassuring dream, you'd see that person happy or something. doesn't matter. If you don't have language, you can't communicate that mm-hmm. to anybody else. Um, so you may form an idea about what it meant, about what that dream meant. You might have your own little cultural dream theory, but if, you know, if you had sufficient intelligence to, to think that far about it, but without language, you wouldn't be able to communicate to anybody else, so it would, it would die with you. So there would be no development uh, into, uh, into full-fledged theories like this. Certainly no scientific theories would be possible, of course, without language either. So, um, so I, uh, I think that's what makes the difference, is that we can talk about these things and, and our species. And, and, and you're right that that goes back uh, as long as language does um, and if you're going to ask me how far language goes back, I can't give you the answer. We don't have a we don't have a definite word on that yet, but uh, it goes back pretty darn far. So uh, let's see, oh, I wanted to mention too the the idea of how, how whether people should take dreams more seriously, especially say in counseling to help one another who are suffering a loss, for example. And well, I I wanted to point out that one thing that's common in at least in the society that I um, have been associated with, for the most part, in North America. One common idea is that dreams are not important. Uh, there's something that's, it's, it doesn't mean anything. You know, this is just your imagination throwing up uh, random stuff. It's not important, and you'd best forget about it. And so I call that the, cult, the, the cultural dream theory of nonsense theory, that what dreams are is just nonsense. So if it's nonsense, you don't have to worry about it. So one of the great things about nonsense theory is you don't worry about it. You, uh, <laughs> if you have a scary dream, it was, well, it was just well, it was just something. It was just a dream. It was nothing. So um, if uh, your child woke up w- with a nightmare, uh, you wouldn't say, oh, gosh, that was a devil visiting you <laughs> and scaring you even more. <laughs> You'd say, don't worry about it. Um, that's just, uh, that was just a dream. It was nothing. And so that can be a great comfort to anyone, you know. So... The the other edge of that though is that uh, you know if uh, if you have a nonsense dream theory and you say dreams are not reflecting anything real, 
then if someone comes to you and says, oh, I had this uh, moving dream, I saw my deceased wife, and I saw she's okay, and she's in heaven, and I'm so happy about that, it can be hard to tell her, well, you know, there's no scientific evidence for heaven, and uh, uh, <laughs> there's no, uh, you know, we don't have uh, uh, soul travel evidence, there's no evidence for souls. So um, so although this dream might be comforting to you, maybe it's comforting for the wrong reasons. So that leads to a difficulty, I think, there, because we talked earlier about empathy. We want to sympathize with people, help them adjust emotionally. On the other hand, I think it's important that we don't mislead people into false belief. And that's a huge challenge since, of course, we humans are not always sure what's false and what's true ourselves. Yeah. Here, here's an idea, though. Is Do you think it's kind of throwing the baby with the bathwater if you go with the idea that they're not they're nonsense and just don't even worry about it because you know from my understanding dreams provide a lot of information they provide it, it's almost like it, it's a mystery in itself of what uses you know i mean you guys know best but you've got a lot of potential there for information and, and knowledge but if you just throw it out you know there's a lot of good things that you could be missing out that's a really excellent point. I, I have to say, personally, I'm not a subscriber to nonsense theory <laughs> fully, mm-hmm. so that there, I personally always make an effort to match as closely uh, as I can to a scientific understanding of things. And so, uh, and you're right. I mean, I mean, if if dreams are, I gave an explanation from some of the latest science that dreams are sh- what the the autonomous mind is showing, comparing images of past and and uh, and more recent events to try and try and update its understandings of things. So that's not nonsense. You know, that means there's something happening there that we could pay attention to. So if you were if you were experiencing, for example, recurrent imagery of some kind, that's showing that your 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 brain is still trying to process this. It's not succeeding in processing it. Whereas if you if you have an imagery that you can relate to a recent event that appears in dreams but that does doesn't keep reappearing but disappears that would seem to be some evidence that you are you've been able to adjust to that you you're moving on um so and and of course then uh people of religious backgrounds would of course also say of course we mustn't uh say mm-hmm. dreams are nonsense they are god speaking to us or they're our chance to visit heaven or what have you so they would have a different uh, a different explanation again that would also support the notion that dreams are not nonsense so yeah yeah, and and to your point, it being a scientific you know reason behind that, like, and, and just dumbing it down, you know, for my my purposes, if it's there in our genetics, if it's been with us, if it's if it's there with us today, you think there'd be a genetic purpose for that? Right. Yeah, it's true. Well, that's that's an interesting point that you know, if why do we see dreaming so widespread in so many living things, and and that was a mystery for a long time, and. Perhaps it's not fully solved, but I think the the idea that dreams are reflecting, you know, the mind's updating its understanding of reality, that any any living thing, any animal needs to learn, you know, things going through life, and so that would be an, a necessary skill. And we do know that the brain is very active um, while asleep as well. So there's a stuff going on there uh, that's necessary, not just updating memory, but other things. Yeah, I tend to look at that just personally where like dreams could be very useful but remembering them could not be so we could just all have dreams just not remember them as we have evolved 
but for some reason we're remembering them. And I think there's something key about that because, you know, there's certain dreams that are just more important than others. And you can sort of, when I look at them and you see that, and I think it goes back to a point where you're saying there's these different theories, but with, when I talk to a lot of people, there's multiple theories going on at the same time. And it's really like guiding people to use discernment as best as possible when picking which theory to use when trying to understand their dream just because of the com- the complications that can happen with a misinterpretation for sure and i mean i like the point you make i mean people are typically using more than one cultural dream theory at the same time and they're using mix and match to to try and to try and uh come up with something so uh so we don't want to be too simplistic in our description of of uh of of uh, their cultural dream theories either uh, and not to mention, you know, so there's the two sides. If you're a researcher or, or, a, or a therapist, you're you're studying dreams as a, as a scholar for some reason. You also need to be aware of what are what is your theory of what is your scientific or your humanistic or your religious theory of dreaming. What how can you use it to make sense of what you're observing, and also maybe how might you test that theory if you have of a scientific bent to to uh, improve it, to find ways in which it doesn't fit, ways in which it needs to be corrected. And I want to just jump ahead now, or jump back, I don't know where we're jumping, but <laughs> to <laughs> your your time, because I, I read, I don't know if, if this is true, was it a year and a half you spent living with the Azabano people? That's right, yeah. Okay, yeah. Could you tell us about that time and why you picked them out of all the other, I guess, places you could have went? Oh, yeah. Um, goodness. Well, there's there are hundreds and hundreds of different peoples living in New Guinea, so uh, it's one of the most uh, linguistically and culturally diverse parts of the world. I so, but why did I choose them and that part of the world? I um, I wanted to uh, when I chose anthropology to study, I really wanted to get away from my own culture, my own people. I wanted to see something completely different and just. And one thing I wanted to get away from was Christianity. <laughs> Ironically, I ended up studying Christians because there's Christians are uh, many in, in Papua New Guinea as well. Um, although I did study their pre-Christian religion too. But uh, so I, I so one of my motives was to find people that are very different from me, I, and and I wanted to find people who had not been studied by anthropologists, at least not in any degree before. So they were unknown. I wanted to contribute to scientific knowledge in that way. In, in a new way. And so New Guinea was a good place for that because it was one of the last parts of the world to be colonized by um, by people from other parts of the world. Um, it was colonized, uh, at least my part of New Guinea where I work, was colonized by um, Germany and, and Britain and then later Australia. And then in 1975, um, it, uh, the country of Papua New Guinea got its independence. But the people that I study themselves, they had been first contacted by outsiders directly, not until 1963. So they're one of the, the last peoples in the world to be contacted by, by by true outsiders as part of the colonial expansion that's been going on for 500 or so years and is now pretty much uh, changing, transforming into something a little different. But uh, so because of that, there were lots of, there were people there that remembered before contact, they remembered the way their culture was in many ways, and of course, they were still not completely living like uh, like people in other parts of the world live. They were still living their ways differently. So, so um, in trying to choose a particular people to study in New Guinea, 
I narrowed it down to, to people of the interior because that was less studied and there were smaller groups. I liked the idea of studying a small group where I could get to know almost everybody. And, uh, and I wanted people that still remembered their old religion. And so um, uh, on the one hand, it was a bad choice because this, the place where the Asavana people live was an epicenter of a Christian revival movement that uh, swept the whole center of New Guinea. <laughs> but uh, not long before that, it was, uh, there was no Christianity. But I ended up thinking, well, you know, I'm going to study these people anyway. First of all, I loved the place. It was beautiful. The people were, were wonderful and very kind and helpful. But also um, the phenomenon of religious conversion itself was worth studying. You know, why would these people uh, abandon their traditional religion, which they had relied on, uh, for something completely foreign? And so uh, so I, I, I went ahead and studied Christians. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny, actually. <laughs> no escape. No escape. <laughs> but what a unique moment in time for you to be able to study the people, because you said, right, cultures change so fast, especially with the age we're living in now, and to be able to be a part of that, because you'll get so many new insights you wouldn't get, you know, 20, 30 years from now, because people remember the old ways, the old way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's really a ship in a bottle type of experience. And when I look at my own family's past, like I come from a a family that was converted, like my grandfathers were converted from, to be honest, I don't even know, Hinduism, maybe Sikhism into Christianity. But there in India, northern Punjab, you had, you know, industrialization happened before then the British had kind of, you know, there. So there's too many variables there uh, to kind of. I guess, do a deep dive into why uh, the conversion happened. But here, you know, I know you've got Christianity coming in and, and doing that, but it's it's still probably less tainted than, if you will, than my situation. Yes, it's a, it was a simpler situation, and the change was, was more recent. So uh, so that, that made it easier to study in that way. But, uh, I mean, uh, a point that uh, that comes from what you're saying, too, is that all times are interesting times. It's not like uh, cultures are going to stop changing. Uh, uh, you know, any – I used to be worried that, uh, you know, all, the, all the, the tribal peoples of the world were being contacted and I would never get to study a group that was mm. really different. And so in a, in a sense, that's true, you know. Um, but on the other hand – things keep changing and they keep being interesting. <laughs> and yeah. one thing that too, that sort of shocked me that I came to realize, you know, you, you go to the other side of the of the planet to study people who believe things that are completely different. And uh, so, and then I studied the kinds of, for example, the, the, the beliefs they had about dreams, that dreams are your soul traveling, or they had believed that dreams were visitations from spirits, or they believed that uh, um, in in dreams, if you did something, it could have an effect on on the future. You know, so so they had various beliefs about dreams. But and I thought, oh, these are exotic beliefs of of a foreign culture. But then the more I I talked about these things at back at home, I realized people in North America have very similar beliefs. You know, they. They claim that so-called Westerners are scientific, but they're not. <laughs> they are, you know, they believe in uh, that uh, if you see a, a person who's died, you're happy that they're still alive. It's like, but no, they're dead. Sorry, <laughs> you know. But so they they will. Uh, these same kinds of beliefs will reappear even in a society that uh, that has a strong scientific tradition. Also, 
So to me, that showed shows me one. Uh, it's not like there's exotic cultures over there and there's normal cultures over here. <laughs> We're all exotic. <laughs> and and two, it shows us that cultures are are all continually changing too. It's not like there's a moment when uh, when history begins, a moment when first contact happens, and then everything is different. It's no, there's always contacts coming and going, and and movements and changes, and they're still ongoing and. And uh, one of my favorite things to think about is, you know, we, we when we look back in history, sometimes we'll say, how could people have been so stupid as to do uh, <laughs> do what they did? You know, they uh, so uh, for example, uh, in the old days when they put in electric wiring in the first days, they didn't think it was necessary to put the wires out of reach or to cover them with insulators, and so people were electrocuted in their own homes. How could they be as stupid to do that? But then it makes you think, well. We eventually learned that by doing that, to you know, to stop doing that stupid thing. But today we do stupid things too, like we uh, destroy our ecosystem. You know, <laughs> uh, we we destroy the the basis of our of our livelihood by by being so careless with the earth and poisoning it, uh, the atmosphere and the oceans. And uh, and it's a political battle to get people to change that. So <laughs> so in the future, people will look upon what we do now, and we think we're doing the right thing. With with similar uh, uh, amazement. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I think it's definitely similar in that. Yeah, you could look at anything, and and people have different opinions. But at the same time, like you guys were alluding to earlier, you know, people are using multiple theories uh, yeah. to explain these dreams. And I think the internet has a huge part to play in that, is because now people are learning about other cultures <laughs> and using some of these other theories, and that's. The speed at which it's happening, I think now is is I think the speed has changed. Uh, where now, you know, especially in North America, people are gathering that information at a crazy rate. So it's an exciting time, and I'm interested in to see what happens in the future. Very true. Yes. Yeah. It does. It does speed everything up, and and also it it increases the distance uh, at which information can travel quickly. But in a way, you know, you know, people often remark that how different that is, and and. True. A point is point taken. However, it's also sort of continuing what we've always done. You know, we've lived in our villages and we've we've bounced ideas off of each other. And then you talk to the people in the next village and you get some different ideas from them and you bring them home. So in a way, we're just continuing what we've always done. You, we, for sure. Except now you can join a Facebook group and hear about <laughs> some yeah. uh, some theory, and then you can uh, you know go on and Twitter, and there's two more theories that are different that are you know. That's right. And you have that sense of community of fellow believers. That's so important in getting people to accept uh, uh, beliefs that are contrary to, to, to physical evidence. If you have a lot of people around you who are saying, no, this is really true, especially a group that you, that you belong to, that's a strong, uh, powerful mover for people to accept these beliefs. It's a dangerous time, Roger. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Uh, there's a uh, one one thing I'd like to talk about. The one thing that I I was kind of shocked with because it didn't really come up in anything I've ever done before, or seen before. And it was the story of how the Azabano people, I guess some currently do. They used to, I guess, more in the past, believe in with the power of witchcraft and how mm -hmm. witches could kill other people, and then people would dream of the deceased telling them who was the witch in town and then they would mm -hmm. then kill that person and i thought that was really fascinating because that's not something we really talk about too often on how impactful these dreams can be in people's actions 
and these types of actions. And I can only imagine how that would have been used in like the even in our society about like the when people kept killing was it called the uh, the witches salem witch trials. yeah salem witch trials i could see them using that type of theory also exactly. in a different way so could you talk about that and then also the dream that helped save the life i think it's also really interesting oh, okay well um you'll have to remind me of that second point but i'll do the witch part first <laughs> so um yes uh so i mean i think this is a point that shows why Understanding the scientific truth of the matter is important, actually, even though it may be traditional to do things a certain way, and it, and it, and that that tradition may have a beauty, and people may you know love it. But when people take their beliefs seriously and they don't actually match with reality, they they act according to those beliefs, and they that can lead to 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 bad things happening. And so so the witch executions, so-called witch executions, was a was a, an, a, a, an example of that, where, as you said, people would uh, dream, uh, uh, so someone dies, the fact that someone died was itself seen as evidence that there are witches and that witches use magical powers to kill people, because if it weren't for that, people wouldn't die. Why do people die? Well, because someone wants them to die. <laughs> That's a classic religious explanation that things happen for a reason, and that reason is someone's will. So that so witch, witchcraft beliefs around the world have that in common that that things happen because of a, a, a of a will of a of a person or a spirit or something. So if if all deaths happen because of a, of a of a person who happens has these witch powers to do it, that means that a death is 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 evidence of a witch from their point of view. Okay, now the question then isn't. Is that is this death was this death really caused by a witch? The question is who is the witch, and what should we do about it? And uh, so to find out the identity of the witch may not be easy. One strategy that they would do in the old days, especially, was they would think about who would have had a um, um, who would have had a bone to pick with that person, who would have been having an argument with them. That might be an indicator of who was likely to have who have used witchcraft against them. But quite often there there wasn't this they didn't believe there was a, a particular reason. In their belief system, witchcraft was caused by having one's belly infested by baby spirit animals, and these baby spirit animals made you hungry for human flesh. So it's a kind of cannibal belief. And so so you would that would cause you to then um kill people and then you eat the body and that's part of your um you know sustenance basically so then they understood which is to think of people as being their meat and so then to figure out who is the witch one uh, one of the best ways for them in the old days was to see dreams if you see a dream of a certain person doing a witchcraft uh, on the person that would be taken as if it were evidence that they had had an eyewitness count if you believe that dreams are actually say soul travel or that they're that they are pictures that are being that are being shown to you by spirit beings, which is another idea that they had. So if they're taking seriously dreams as being more than just mental images, that means that they can put them into the service of of witchcraft beliefs and also accusations and then also executions, because they believed in the old days that the only way to stop witches was to kill them. So there were I heard several heartbreaking stories of people who were had been identified as a witch, a vigilante mob assembled, and they 
went to that person, killed them, and threw their body in the river. And the reason they threw the body in the river was because they believed that if the so the body was destroyed by being broken up by the rocks on the river as it washed downstream, the soul would also be destroyed, and then it wouldn't be able to come back and, and cause more damage. <laughs> so... Uh, so what people believe about dreams does matter. It can it can lead to very harmful things, and it can lead to, to benevolent things as well. And I, I believe some of those dreams may have the deceased telling them who the witch is. Would that be accurate, too? Sure. And this could also happen when the person is not yet dead. They might they might themselves have a dream, and then they and they would say, "Oh, I saw who who attacked me," or they might have an impression for whatever reason, and they would say that, I think it's so-and-so, and that could be taken as enough um, reason to go and kill that person. Now, that's changed um, since one of the... Um, so I'm an atheist, and I celebrate when people <laughs> leave religion. However, uh, one of the one of the pluses, in my view, of their converting to Christianity was that uh, they changed their violent behaviors toward one another. So, so instead of killing a person accused of witch, they still believe in witch in witches, but uh, they they deal with it by prayer now instead. So I think that's a much much better way. <laughs> so you admitted it on this podcast, all right? And I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they really could have used uh, their own version of a uh, Sherlock Holmes, eh? Like some sort of, uh, <laughs> well, detective. they would say, you know, they would say that that's not the real reason. So, so you know, you could say, you know, when you when you encounter people who believe in in magical death like that, you could say, well, you, you say a witch caused this man to die, but look, he's got a his head's been bashed in, you know, by a tree that <laughs> fell on him. Um, and they'd say, they'd say, well, yeah, that person's but got why? a rock that's got blood on it. <laughs> they'd say yes, but why did the tree fall on him? Why, why, you know, why did he trip? And that had to have been caused by witchcraft. So they're, they're, and that's again a typically religious way of approaching the world. You don't just accept physical cause and effect for itself. You always assume there has to be a reason of, of someone's desire, someone's willpower that made something happen this way, be it a spirit, a god, or another person. You know, that definitely puts the control back into your life so you can minimize that occurring again. I can see like how, why people sort of do that just a way to sort of feel safer. In the, you know, um, it's really interesting you say that. As, as I've, I've often heard that explanation. It, it gives people a sense of control. And, and I see your point, but I'm all, often struck by the opposite side. Because if anybody can be a witch and can just kill me, does that really give me control? I mean, you know, <laughs> I can watch out for I can watch out for dangers in the environment instead, and and not be constantly walking in fear of my life of, of witches. And and people do walk in fear of witches. If they hear a bird sing that they're not expecting, they will often think there's a witch there, and they they're, they're yeah. terrified. It's probably the lesser of two evils because mm. it, it, if you already don't understand how a body dies naturally, mm -hmm. like through the decomposing process then yeah of course there's so many things you've got to fear over there you might the you know the witch thing sounds pretty good <laughs> <laughs> well i'm not sure i could go there with you but uh i i see your point but it but indeed it's it's comprehensible in a certain way so yeah yeah the unknown is i think you know very scary um, mm. and you know just gives reason but yeah with any reason comes these other things that i don't know if people think that deeply about you know, like, <laughs> yeah. no, like the way don't. you're thinking, they I'm like, don't. yeah, you're right. But I'm like, I don't think 
think that deeply. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> this is one of the. This comes back to the kid that stepped on the toad in the playground. <laughs> yeah. They, other yeah. people. I discovered this as an anthropologist. I think deeply about things like this, and most people they really just don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, yeah. There's a comfort in um, you know just pointing towards somebody, either a, a, another person or another source. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in religion, we say that often, like, just leave it up to God and yeah. just have have the belief. And, and so then you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. It's, it alleviates a lot of that stress. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. But it, again, it just that argument just doesn't move me because, uh, yeah, I mean, I can see how, yes, if you if uh, in the in a good situation, like you say, I'm, I'm feeling endangered. But if I believe that there's that there's a powerful being that's looking after me and I'm just leaving it in, in her hands, that can have a certain kind of comfort to it, but but that's just that sort of specific situation, you know. But if if the world comes down to the willfulness of of various beings, there's nasty beings too. There's all the bad things that happen. It's not just good things. And and if those are all caused caused by will too, you know, I can't control another person's will. You know, say I want you guys to do something. Okay, <laughs> I want you to. Uh, to clean my clean my garage this weekend, you know, <laughs> it's not going to be easy to convince you to do that. But just figuring out what needs to be done and doing it myself, you know, or working with the physical laws of cause and effect, I can get that garage cleaned easier than trying to convince someone to do it. In some cases, at least. <laughs> well, I think that's you know the, the big thing with grief. It allows people they go into a crisis of faith because how mm-hmm. could like a good God allow this death to occur and and something in different forms right and and you see that and i know some of these dreams do help restore faith which you know we have there's religions for a reason i think it really helps communities and people uh, maintain a sense of uh support with each other in different ways you know some some more than others <laughs> and so the one uh i want to go back to that one dream I, I shared about or i mentioned about the dream saving someone's life was the dream in your article where the i believe it the father uh was was thinking so it was a witch that killed the son but then the mother i believe had the dream of the son saying that his death was from natural causes and to tell to tell dad that that's right a witch. yeah which i thought was i'm like wow like so that dream saved the life where other dreams will kill a life yes yes indeed indeed uh, <laughs> so um so it, it matters what you believe dreams are and what they can do. It will have a big impact on how you understand not just the dream, but what what you do afterwards. And that and it can be absolutely life and death consequences. So I think that's the really important takeaway. So people are going to believe all kinds of things that don't match reality, as as we're able to understand it scientifically. We're not gonna we're not gonna just change that quickly, if ever. Probably never going to be able to completely change that. But at least understanding that will give us a handle on it. Yeah. And I want to sort of also mention, because I know we're running out of time, but I want to, if you can go back and, and talk about your experience having your own dream of deceased while being a part of a new culture and what that meant for you in understanding. Sure. Um, well, the story was, um, so I was studying their beliefs in uh, in uh, ghosts and spirits and things, and, and I was now I now understand that when I dreamed about a ghost in the field, that was my brain 
comparing what I was learning their ideas about ghosts with with my old ideas about ghosts that I'd learned as a child. So the the dream was it was actually kind of a waking vision. I was just on the edge of waking up, and uh, I saw the ghost of uh, my my dead sister, who had died many years before, appear, and she was uh, nasty and and harassing me and and uh, possibly hurting me, and uh, and I woke up and and. What most struck me at that moment was that I was actually scared by it because I was at that point thoroughly convinced that ghosts are imaginary. <laughs> so, uh, and so it, it really impressed me that I could be scared by this, even though my waking self did not believe in it at all <laughs> and was not worried. <laughs> so, so that gave me a great insight and an empathy, you know, on how dreams can convince people to believe in these things. They really feel so convincing, especially at the time. And then if you get social support that that was a ghost, that's going to really cement that, you know, in, in people's minds. But um, the way I, I came to understand it more later was I, I thought about it a lot. And, and what, what, what seemed strange to me was that my sister, first of all, I, I had dreamt about my sister being dead before, many years before when it had happened. But it wasn't a threatening situation. It was more just, this is weird. My sister isn't, is not alive anymore. And I, the dream was of her being buried. And uh, it was just weird trying to make sense of it all for a little boy's mind. And this time, my sister was a nasty, threatening ghost. And so the nasty threateningness is like, where did that come from? I didn't have any, you know, I'd not had any anxieties or worries about the sister or worries about ghosts or life after death. But the local people had been telling me, you know, don't go out at night. There's there's uh, ghosts that can hurt you, and uh, you know, dead people can can cause problems. And and so I was absorbing this culture and uh, and studying it, and it was interacting with my home culture in my in my brain as my brain was updating its uh, model of reality. And so it this juxtaposed images of my traditional ghosts and the new ghosts produced this hybrid uh for my for my uh, dreaming mind and because i remembered the image into waking life it could have a stronger impact on my thought than it would have if it had just been uh, you know unprocessing that that i forgot as soon as i woke up yeah i thought that was so interesting how it was it combined and it was giving you a sense of understanding of basically how they feel when they when they have that type of dream and and I think, too, it's good to clarify that, I guess, the deceased can affect the dreamer in many ways. And, and one is because I think they're, if I get the story right, they're still attached to the living and they kind of want the sometimes the dreamer to die. Is that right? So that they can be together? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's their idea is that uh, the dead miss the living just like we miss the dead. And so um, they they want us to be dead so that we'll come join them. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting because I don't hear that in, in like in my culture, anyways. That That's I've never right. Heard something like that before. <laughs> no, indeed. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things that's charmingly different from one culture to another. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the other thing I want to sort of ask because you just touched on it, could you just go back to your relationship with your sister? You said you were young when she died. Could you just go through that event and? how you worked through some of that that grief? Okay, so I was 10 years old, and uh, my sister was 15, and uh, she was accidentally shot at a party. So I, you know, it was more, you know, I was just a kid, so I don't really have much memory of it particularly. Of course, it was shocking and, and uh, sad, but it's not like I, I don't remember having a, 
uh, particular grief process. And the only dreams that I that I remember from that event was I remember seeing, you know, seeing a scene in a cemetery of her being buried, and and thinking to myself, that's weird, you know, <laughs> that's weird that she's that that she's buried, you know. But so so it was it was more. This is strange. Now this is the memory of of a man decades after the event. So it's it's really hard for me to recreate you know, what I actually went through in that, in that time. So I can't do it with, uh, do any justice. No, it's, it's understandable. And at that time, grief really wasn't talked about much. Did, do you know, was there a funeral or a, or a ceremony that you went to? Cause I know back in those days, I guess, right. Kids really weren't allowed or weren't brought to funerals. So do you know if you went? Oh, good question. Now, so this was 1972. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't have a memory of, of of the funeral, but I, but there must have been. There must have been. It's just, can... you know, when you get older, you start not, you 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 don't really remember details of childhood. At least I don't. <laughs> Maybe it means I'm really over the hill. <laughs> but uh, but so I I can't say for certain. But I I don't remember it being like. I shouldn't be there as a child. Sorry, I just can't really answer that question. I just don't remember well enough. I'll ask my my older sisters and can they remember. Yeah, it'll be really interesting just for me to hear, just to give maybe some understanding of that dream because it, um, with children, I know a lot of times they'll have these uh, scenarios that come in into place to give them understanding yeah. that of what happened for many of the times. And some sometimes I've heard anyways, like people have dreams like this and they just never were able to go or attend. And so it's like they're getting to attend that within their dream world kind of thing oh, to make right. sense of it. Yeah. So right. I was just really curious. Or if it was you went and then it was just like trying to absorb that memory. Right. So it was like those are the two thoughts I was just thinking about. Good question. I would be knowing my parents, I would be surprised if they hadn't taken me to the fun mm. to the funeral. There must have been a funeral and I sh and I and I must have been there. I just don't remember. But I will definitely ask my older sisters and uh and I'll get back to you in an email <laughs> and tell you what the answer was. <laughs> That's cool. I, I appreciate that. It's, it uh, just allows me to just update my information because I'm continuing to evolve my understanding of how these dreams play a role in people's lives and, right. and how they, you know, I think, you know, can work with us as we process the, the grief mm -hmm. because it's such a hard process for so many people um, yeah. as you sort of try to work through emotions. We really just haven't, you know, sat with and for most of our, our life. And then we have this abundance of feelings and changes that are going on. And um, just any kind of new info I can get can always help the next person that I meet. Sure. Well, that's, I mean, that's another side of dreams that we haven't really talked about, which is their their role in emotional adjustment. And uh, there's a scholar named Cartwright, I don't, you might be familiar with her work, um, uh, who is, who's written quite a lot about dreams and as emotional adjustment and uh especially you know to upsetting things that happen and you you can work through these things uh and i think that idea is very compatible with with the scientific idea that i've been talking about that it's just the brain is comparing various things including emotional things and what's going on here just trying to make sense of it finding a, a way forward so yeah well this is, has been an amazing conversation i've really appreciated just talking with you and learning so much, you know, like I could just sit here for hours and I'll probably uh, <laughs> call you off air and just talk more um, at some time in the future. But yeah, what you're doing is just so amazing. And I hope more people find your work because it's like I found it very randomly 
but I'm now, you know, really pushing your work when I do different talks and stuff to showcase, you know, the other aspects of these dreams as we move forward. So hopefully we can make use of your work a little bit more in the world to really just, you know, get people to understand the sermon and understand, have empathy for different cultures and to just realize that, you know, there's so much to the dreaming world that we just need to need to know as we sort of help those that we that we meet. So I just want to thank you for that work that you, you are doing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, I appreciate your interest and uh, and I agree with you 100 percent on what you just said. All right. So our last question on the podcast uh, is always if you could dream of someone who has died, it could be your sister or anyone else. Uh, what would that dream look like to you? <laughs> Oh gosh, that's really hard to answer. What would a dream look like of someone who has died? You know, I I'm I'm not going to give you a good podcastable answer to that question because I can't because I have such an odd idea about death. I mean, for me, for me death is is the end. It's it's the end of of the body's running and the body is us. So it's like so 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 someone I lost, you know, more recently uh, is my father. And I didn't have dreams about him particularly when he died, but it was it was definitely moving when he died, and I miss him and everything. But you know, so if I imagine what would it be like to have a dream of him that I'm happy with, you know, I'm very happy with the notion that that he stopped running, you know, and that you know he had a good life and and we had good times together, and that that's over now. And uh, there's and the the molecules have moved in different directions, and uh, things are happening in different ways. So to me, that's a, you know, maybe the way, the same way many religious people find comfort in there being an afterlife of some kind that's pleasant. I find great comfort in there being no afterlife, <laughs> in, uh, you know, that to, 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 to live now, you know, and to uh, appreciate it and to know it will end and, and the good and the bad, you know, and it'll, uh, so, so a satisfying dream of, uh, of uh, say, my, my, my father being dead. Well, I, I mean, it's just like memories of him uh, being around, but then also uh, comfort that he is, he's, he's no more. My question would have been, before you just said that, is so you wouldn't want a positive dream, but you, you, you are open to that idea, which is, which is great. Yeah. So, I mean, my dad does appear in my dreams occasionally. And when I wake up, it's like, oh, yeah, he's not alive. That's... <laughs> yeah, so you don't so, need a new TV show. You're, you're happy with the rerun of an of a old memory that's nice and, you know, whatever you guys had fun doing together. Do, do you guys have that, any hobbies or anything? That's right. So uh, so it's not like I want to know anything about him. I think that's what I mean. That's what it boils down to. I think mm-hmm. maybe for a lot of people um, who have more religious-style grief dreams, they have the satisfaction of seeing, oh, my my – my loved one is is happy and okay in some way. They're still alive, in fact. It was just a, a sort of illusion that they died, and they get comfort in in that. Uh, and I'm not looking for that at all, because I'm not uncomfortable with with death, except for of course it's not pleasant yet. <laughs> it's like yes, it's hard to go through, but you go through it and and you mourn and then you move on, and uh, and uh, that that's what works for me. Um, so. Um, yeah, so 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 I I like when my dad appears in dreams, it's it's fun, but it's not like this changes my relationship with him or my my it changes my understanding of what's happened to him and I am able to cope with it better. It I guess because I have I have coped with it and uh it's you know, it'd be nice if he could live forever, but he didn't and and uh that's okay. <laughs> well, that's what's amazing about just, you know, people having these dreams just I found in the research that it, if you're spiritual or not, 
it doesn't really make a difference in people having these types of dreams. And so mm. it doesn't really, it's not really about, oh, if you believe in an afterlife, you're going to have more of these. We're just having them, right? And it's like, All right. and they, and then they tend to be very positive and they help people in different ways. As you know, Sean was saying, like some of these dreams do just replay old memories. You get to have a chance right. to go back in time and, and, re and be a part of that scene again. And I think, you know, and feel that love that you share. And I think that's an amazing aspect of these. And then there's that interpretation part when you wake up. Well, some people mm -hmm. will believe that it's something other people will just say, oh, that was just a beautiful dream. You know, it's a, it's a work of art, you know, that I was a, right. a part of. I think that's, you know, that's the beauty of it. And that's where you sit and which is great. And so as uh, Sean was saying, what would what was a positive memory that you had of your father? Oh, uh, well, probably, you know, taking walks. He was a big uh, nature lover. And uh, going all the way back to when I was a kid, we would go for walks in the woods and he would point out uh, the different species of trees and uh, he would or he'd, he'd point out constellations to me and teach me about all kinds of things in the natural world. So so that's probably the, my, my most pleasant uh, memory of him. Oh, that's a beautiful one, especially with the, the type of person you are that we've gotten to know being an <laughs> inquisitive uh person that's great to have someone like that or you know in your life uh, who, who kind of guided you and was able to point out things and, and uh, stimulate that curiosity well that's for sure you're right this has been uh this has been an incredible conversation roger and like joshua was saying we could do this for another four or five hours uh, you know and and have a have an amazing time but uh, unfortunately, the listeners may not be happy with that. So, <laughs> <we're> gonna... <laughs> so uh, yeah, is, uh, is there any location or anything where people can find your work if they wanted to uh, or purchase your book? Oh, um, well, I would just do a search for, for my name, Roger Ivar Lohman, and you'll find uh, various of my articles and publications pop up. And you're teaching at Trent University. Can people take a course from you online or do you have to be actually on campus these days? Um, <laughs> uh, you ha you well, we, right now where there's no classes, when they say next year we will be in person, we'll see. But uh, yes, I do teach at the at the Durham campus of a uh, of Trent University, which is located in Oshawa, Ontario. And so um, uh, I teach various courses. Um, so, and we do touch on dreams in some of them. In fact, I had a seminar last term, which was online. It was on the anthropology of dreaming. And I had one student. <laughs> so you all missed your opportunity. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, you know, hey, this is the, a call to action to all the listeners out there in Ontario. <laughs> our few listeners that we do have in the area. <laughs> Support your local anthropology department and take a course with Roger. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Would love to see you. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. And uh, again, uh, so to our listeners, tune in to the next episode, and we'd like to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Thank you for listening to the episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to know more about the topic, please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca. On there, you can take our two online courses. Number one is a Grief Dreams Workshop by Dr. Joshua Black, which is designed to help you learn all about the topic. And number two is crazy in love using romantic relationships as a vehicle for growth, which is designed to make you rethink modern intimate relationships. And that's by Dr. Joshua Black and Jade Carling Black. On the website, you can also book a one-on-one -on -one Grief Dreams consulting session with Dr. Black. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse, at Grief Dreams. 
And we have two clubs on Clubhouse that you can follow, Grief Dreams and Grief Cafe. If you have Facebook, you can follow our Grief Dreams podcast page to be notified of when we release new episodes. You can also join the Grief Dreams Facebook group to share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Once again, to help support the podcast, please subscribe and read the podcast on the platform you listen to it on. This helps our show come up when people search for Grief Dreams podcast. Also, you can become a member of the podcast through Patreon. We have three membership levels, $1.50 a month, $7 a month, and $20 a month. And again, this money helps us run the podcast. You can find the Patreon link in the show notes. We would like to thank all those who continue to support us. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you can be comforted by your dreams tonight.